As the story goes, uh, he was going to his relative's wedding. In fact, it was his closest relative's wedding. And he was walking on the street. And just as he got outside the home, in fact, he could see inside the open doorway, doorway the celebration going on. Just as he got there, an old hand reached out and, and grabbed him on the sleeve. And the most arresting characteristic of the person who grabbed him was this long gray beard, the gray beard and and glittering eyes, eyes that were younger than the face and the beard and the hand. And, 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 and he compelled this wedding guest. You have to listen to my story. I have to tell you uh, what happened at first as, as the old man started talking. It was a bother. He was bored. He was frustrated. He, he wanted to go into the celebration. But as the old man continued, his story drew him in. That's how the story goes, at least how the beginning of the story goes in a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, over 200 years ago. You may have had to read it in high school uh, or in one of your college literature classes. It's called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's a well-known story. The focus of the poem is on the experience of this sailor. It starts outside the wedding, but he's, he's telling his story. He tells a story about how he was a young sailor once on a, on a voyage that started with great success. Uh, they made it from Great Britain all the way to the Antarctic. And as they were leaving the Antarctic, he, this, as a young sailor, killed an albatross that had been flying around their ship. Uh, that was the moment when the suffering uh, started. The wind died, the ship stopped cutting through the water, and the sailors there languished in the ocean for days and weeks. Their water began to, ran out, uh, to run out, and their suffering was intense. In fact, the sailors blamed this young man uh, for killing the albatross, and as punishment, they made him wear the carcass of this bird around his neck. Uh, you've heard that phrase, he's got an albatross around his neck. It comes from this, this poem. In time, everyone on the ship died except for this mariner. He's alone there. And let me read for you just a couple of the lines how uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge describes this. Here's these lines. Alone, alone, all, all alone. Alone on a wide, wide sea, not a saint took pity on my soul in agony. Everyone in some way can relate to this sense of isolation. You might not be feeling it right now, uh, but you have or you will this this sort of loneliness. And it has diverse roots, this, this loneliness does. Maybe, like the ancient mariner, it, it has its roots in your own guilt or shame. This sense of isolation can be rooted in suffering. There are few places as lonely as a hospital room at night when you're sitting in the chair and someone you love is in the bed. Or it's a lonely visit many people make to cemeteries. They stand over the, the, the tombstones there. Maybe you, your sense of isolation comes because you feel misunderstood or underappreciated. I try and try and try and no one responds to, to, to what I try to do for them. 
Sometimes loneliness is just circumstantial. You're in this situation. College students who move to a new town, away from home, away from lifelong friends and familiar places, they feel isolated. You're going to make friends, but it takes a long time. It will be be several weeks, if not months, maybe a couple years on this new campus before you'll have friends like you have friends at home. This isolation is not just depressing, it can be dangerous. Thirty years ago, Phil Zimbardo wrote an article called The Age of Indifference. Listen to what he said. I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. It has been shown to be a central agent in the etiology of depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, rape, suicide, mass murder, and a wide variety of disease states. Now, it was not part of God's original design that human beings should experience such isolation. In fact, the first thing that God notices that's not good about the world he made is that, that Adam in the garden was alone. This is not good. And all the way through the Bible, God creates community. He calls people together. He made Adam a suitable partner. He he commanded Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. He used the law in the Old Testament to create a, a nation. Jesus formed the church. Um, in, in the end, when when eternity begins, how does God picture us? We who are the followers of Jesus Christ live in a city together, not in isolated communities, but in a a city close to one another. God creates community. In fact, God commands people to follow him together. You cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ without other believers. And, and the expectation of the New Testament is that those who isolate themselves from other believers experience loss and sorrow and deprivation. Ah, I teach a class at Lancaster Bible College, one a semester, and one of the great discussions we have is uh, I say to them, all right, I think it's a sin for you not to belong to a church. <laughs> they, what? How is that possible? Is that, is that true? They push back. God commands people to follow him together. We recognize with this command here that the Bible has a value system about community that is at odds sometimes with the expectations and the experiences of of people, a lot of people. God may command us to follow him together, but that is not, not always easy. I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, how well can you enunciate why community is important? How well, if you had to uh, describe why God commands us to follow him together, could you do it? Here's the reasons why. And the second question is, if you can do that, does your level of participation match what the Bible says about community? In other words, can you say how important it is, and does what you do match how important you say it is? Or how important you think God says it is. God commands us to follow him together. Uh, That's true. But we know why it's so hard. Uh, We live in a broken world. And sometimes getting along with other people is the pits. Um, Everybody here has at some point in time been hurt, abused, neglected, taken advantage of. Everyone has experienced those things at least once in your life. 
This morning from the Bible, I want to show you a very basic formula. In fact, from two chapters in the book of Leviticus. Here's, here's the basic formula. Unholiness equals isolation. Unholiness equals isolation. That is, the condition of brokenness that we find ourselves in as human beings, externally, internally, personally, and socially, in rebellion against our Creator, it isolates us. That's the theme that I want to show you from Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. And I want you to turn there with me if you haven't already. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to this chapter, these two chapters in the book of Leviticus. We're slowly making our way through uh, Leviticus. And um, we are here now uh, at the halfway point as we move through this book. And I want to show you uh, this theme of unholiness and isolation in these two chapters. Now, if this passage were a cutting, uh, were a knife, the cutting edge would be verses 45 and 46. These are the verses in chapter 13 that do the work of these chapters and, and bring to us this theme. Look, look at with me at Leviticus 13 verses 45 and 46. It's about disease. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear t- torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. This is the knife edge, this isolation that is impulsed. But there's more here. And to feel the sharpness of these verses, what I want to do is I want to, if I can, beg your indulgence for just a minute and talk about the rest of the knife in this passage, the blade and, 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 and the handle. Now, you remember that one of the purposes of the book of, of Leviticus, this volume, is to uh, give the, the worship manual for the Israelites. This is how they were supposed to worship God. And they needed to worship God in His holiness. He is a holy God. He is uniquely, by that, good and powerful and uniquely loving and just And for this period of time that the Israelites are dealing with, God has moved physically into the land. And his presence with them in their neighborhood brings tremendous blessings. It also brings some liabilities. Think about it as as the sun. We've talked about this a few times. Uh, The sun, what does the sun do? Everything. Is there anything that the sun doesn't do? Life on earth could not exist without the sun. But if you spend too much time in it, it will kill you. So you put sunscreen on to shield you from the sun's power. And the Israelites covered themselves, sometimes literally, most often not, with the blood of sacrificial animals. And it protected them from the holiness of God that rages against their sin. Now, from chapters 11 through 15, we have uh, written for us what, what are called the purity laws. Rituals for the people to follow. They're temporary. They seem very culturally strange to us. uh, But they're all designed to teach people crucial lessons about the holiness of God. And one of those crucial lessons is that holiness is related to wholeness. Holiness and wholeness. God is whole. That is, he is the author of life and health. And everything that is a step away from perfect health and perfect life is unwhole. And therefore, it's separated from God. 
from the beginning pages of the Bible, we learn this connection. Sin leads to death and anything in between life and death, sickness, is uh, not physically whole and therefore not physically holy. Chapters 13 and 14 are about disease. Specifically, they're about skin disease. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, When anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin, that may be a defiling skin disease. They must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. And as the instructions here in these chapters continue, there are two lessons, two important lessons that... that predominate here. First of all, isolation is a fruit of sin. It's one of the things we're going to talk about as we go through this. Isolation is a fruit of sin. Second, we're going to discover that God provides a way for us to come home. If sin sends us away and isolates us, God provides a way for us to come home. Now, let me explain this chapter a little bit further if I can. Just one warning to us as as we talk about this. Don't try to read this text as a medical passage. Medicine is not the chief emphasis in this passage. We have medically trained people, and we are just in our culture because we're, we think about disease and medicine a lot. We, think, we, we tend to think that way about germs and bacteria. Uh, that's not the primary emphasis here. You'll have problems reading this if you try to use it, read it exclusively from your medical knowledge. Now, here's, here's why. This chapter is not nearly precise enough to be medical. Uh, your translation of the Bible, older ones in particular, might use the word leprosy here rather than skin disease. My NIV says skin disease all the way throughout. Maybe yours says leprosy. Uh, that's because the Greek translation of the Bible, it's called the Septuagint when it was made, translated the word skin disease as lepra, the Greek word lepra, which then came over into English as leprosy. Now, leprosy is a disease that we think of, that the proper name today for leprosy is Hansen's disease. And Hansen's disease is an anti, uh, excuse me, a, a, a bacterial uh, disease. And it's a horrible, horrible disease. Now, the problem is, if you read uh, leprosy into this chapter, you're going to have problems because the symptoms that are described here are not identical to the symptoms of Hansen's disease. And Hansen's disease was known in Old Testament times and feared, but uh, not as as predominant as as you might think. It's probably not true. There, There are probably nobody, none of the people in the Bible who says they have leprosy have what we think of when we think of leprosy, Hansen's disease. Changes how you read the New Testament a little bit. The ten lepers and Naaman, they probably didn't have leprosy. They had some other sort of skin disease. Probably what's described here in these passages, uh, one of three diseases, either psoriasis or an infection called favus or leucoderma. Um, the only one I had ever heard of before I studied this was psoriasis, thanks to gold bond commercials. Um, this text is not medically precise. Uh, there, there, another reason it's not medically precise is because Moses here used the same word for a skin disease that he did to describe a mold growth on the walls of your house or on fabric. Um, in this non-scientific uh, work, the book of Leviticus, your skin, your sweatshirt, and your living room could all get the same disease. 
Don't read this as a medical text. It's not a medical text. Uh, This is not a medical text because there's nothing in here about healing. Now, if the Bible were like other ancient religious texts, after describing these diseases, there would be a formula or an incantation, a recipe. Here's what the priests are supposed to do. If you have a rash, you go find the priest and he'll do something. He'll make some potion, something with eye of newt in it that will help you get healed. But there's no healing in this. The priests are not doctors. All they're doing is examining you for ritual purity. They're looking for wholeness, not exclusively health, the way we think of it. Now, as chapter 13 unfolds here, it tells us what to do with various, or what they were supposed to do with various skin conditions. Verse 18, look at it, is about boils, if you have a boil on your skin. Verse 24 is about burns, if you have a burn on your skin. Verse 29 is about a sore in your hair or your beard. And, frankly, I feel compelled to point out my favorite verse in this whole chapter, verse 40. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. (laughs) May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Now, um, each each section, if you have a, a rash or a boil or a burn, each section is somewhat repetitive. What you're supposed to do is you notice it on your skin, And you call a priest, and a priest comes, and and the text gives him some information about diagnosing the problem. Uh, Look at verses uh, 3. Not diagnosing, that's a medical term, we're not talking medical. But look at verse 3. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin. And if the hair in the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, but it's a defiling skin disease. When the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them ceremonially unclean. That's one thing that could be done. Now, sometimes there needed to be more time. Verse 4, if the shiny spot on the skin is white, but does not appear to be more than skin deep, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days and then go back. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine them, and if he sees that the sore is unchanged and has not spread in the skin, he is to isolate them for another seven days, two weeks of tests. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine them again, and if the sore has faded and has not spread in the skin, the priest shall pronounce them clean. It is only a rash. They must wash their clothes and they will be clean. But if the rash does spread in their skin after they have shown themselves to the priest to be pronounced clean, they must appear before the priest again. The priest is to examine that person, and if the rash has spread in the skin, he shall pronounce them unclean. It is a defiling skin disease. Sometimes the diagnosis was immediate, or sometimes the the ritual declaration was immediate. Sometimes it took one or two weeks. Eventually, though, you would either be declared clean or unclean. And verse 45 tells us what you're supposed to do if you're unclean. Uh, We read it just a minute ago. Tear your clothes. Let your hair be unkempt. Don't comb your hair. Cover the lower part of your face and cry out, unclean, unclean, and then leave. This is a permanent moving out of the, the, the community. Uh, there is a sort of uncleanness. Remember from chapter 12, last time we were together talking about this, there is a sort of uncleanness where you stay in the camp. A, a woman who gave birth uh, was unclean for uh, a period of time, and she stayed in the camp. This is an uncleanness, though, that sends you out. You tear your clothes. 
you let your hair go. It, it, it's a mourning type of life. Can you imagine what sort of fear this passage might have engendered in the, in the tribe? What do, you, what do you do if you look down one day and you see something on your arm that, that might be a, a sort of rash? Huh. What if this is a sort of rash that makes you unclean and you have to leave? <laughs> you cover it up. Why are you wearing long sleeves today? It's really hot outside. Oh, I was a little chilly. Cover it up. You don't want anybody to see that. What? Somebody sees it and a priest comes. What if the priest looks at it and tells you that you're unclean? You have to leave. Your life is over. You can't live with your family. You can't eat with them. You can't work anymore. You can't live in your home. You're banished from the community. You're banished from worship. And anytime anybody comes near you, you cover your face and you yell out, unclean, unclean, so they will stay away from you. If the Psalms are accurate in in describing uh, uh, how the Israelites... Being in God's house was the best experience ever. If the Psalms are right, there are passages that talk about that. Oh, I long to be in, in God's house. If that's, if that's true, these people are excommunicated. You are out. You act like a mourner. You tear your clothes because you, this is a living death. So you get the idea. If a house has a disease like this, this is in chapter 14. If a house has some sort of mold growing on it, a skin disease, uh, you tear the house down. If, if fabric has, has some mold growing on it, you burn the garment. You tear down the house, you burn the garment, and you send the people, the person, away. Now, this passage doesn't put disease and sin together immediately. That, there is no indication here in this passage that these people who had skin diseases were guilty of any particular sort of sin. Uh, we do not believe. The Bible says not all disease is a result of sin. But it is not difficult to see the spiritual lessons that are here. This is what sin does. It isolates Adam and Eve lived in the garden, right? They rebelled against God and decided that they were going to live life their own, on their own terms. And what happens to them? They're banished from the garden. When the nation of Israel disobeyed God, what happened to God? They, they, or to them, they were exiled from the land. They were carried out. In the New Testament, when those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ no longer live as if they are followers of Jesus Christ, a church must exclude them from the community, must treat them as unbelievers. Now, see, so struggle with that a little bit. A lot. Does the Bible say... But treat people as unbelievers. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we slash their tires or spray paint their house. It means that, that they now are outsiders who need to repent. They're not brothers and sisters. We don't serve them communion. We don't share prayer requests with them. We don't ask them to pray in the service because we're treating them as if they are unbelievers. This afternoon, we're going to vote in our congregational meeting to welcome 12 people into membership. Um, I don't think this is allegorizing the text at, at all to say it seems like the church is this afternoon going to act a little bit like these priests. Priest comes and examines and says, oh, yep, you're clean. Uh, or, oh, nope, you're not clean. 
Uh, and and the church has a responsibility, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, charge us with the responsibility of recognizing those who are followers of Jesus Christ, genuinely followers of Christ, and bringing them into the community. And we have the responsibility, should this ever happen, to uh, one of our members, whether it be me, one of our elders, anybody who is a member of our congregation, if our lives does not, do not match our testimony, we are under obligation to exclude them. Sin isolates. You can see how this is true in your life, can't you? The, the reason that you back off from people or the reason that you withdraw is because you're afraid of what they're going to do with what you share with them. Uh, you're afraid, as, as people get to know you, you're afraid that they're going to mock you or laugh at you or betray you or worse, worse than all those, ignore you. You're afraid that other people are going to do that to you, but... You're not, you're, not, you're not always completely trustworthy yourself, either. What happens when you get a group of men together? Uh, stand back and watch. The next time you're in a setting like that, stand back and watch. I notice this in myself. I notice this in myself. Usually it's too late for my own good. It happens in seventh grade classrooms. It happens in senior centers. This is what men do. Every man in the group has two conflicting desires. The first one is they want to be affirmed. They, they want the men that are there to recognize, yep, you belong. You're man enough to be here. You're one of us. Come on in. At the same time, they also have the desire not just to be affirmed, but they have the desire to prove that they're not the weakest man there. That there is somebody else who is not as strong, not as witty, not as smart, not as athletic, not as talented. You cannot at the same time affirm someone while you are trying to dominate them. You, you can't in love affirm them while you're trying to show how much smarter, stronger, better you, you are. And, and our, our desire not to be seen, not to be known as weak, isolates us. If skin diseases are like, are like sin, right, every one of us should be walking around to a certain extent and yelling out, unclean, unclean. Isolation is a, is a fruit of sin. That's why love is such a significant marker of the genuineness of your faith in the New Testament. Isn't this what Jesus told us? Uh, the King James, right? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus could have ended that sentence in, in a number of ways, in a number of essential ways, things that are essential for the church. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have an excellent doctrinal statement. The church needs a good doctrinal statement. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have robust membership practices. That's important. Uh, solid commitment to marriage is the union between a man and a woman. Those are, those, that's an important important. Conviction to have. But they're not the essential identifier that our Lord communicated. When he says, by this will all men know that you have, are my disciples, if you have love one for another, he is taking on directly this, this concept that sin isolates. It sends us away from one another. And what centrally marks us as followers of Jesus Christ is this isolation overcoming 
love. People outside the church uh, uh, do not need help. They're not attracted by our ability to fight. Boy, you guys can fight. I want to join you. Or uh, to take revenge or to stoke bitterness or to neglect one another. They know all about the isolation. But what's stunningly different is, is love. Now, how is that supposed to happen in a community of believers? Here's the second lesson that I think in these chapters, the second one. God provides a way for us to come home. Sin isolates us from him and from one another. It sends us away. But in chapter 14, we have described here what are the most extensive instructions for purification in the Old Testament. And frankly, this is a very odd ceremony. I don't understand it all. Let me read it to you. Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 7. This is what, a part of what you're supposed to do. This is the strangest part, the most unfamiliar to us. The Lord said to Moses, chapter 14, verse 2, These are the regulations for any diseased person at that time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. Now again, the priest doesn't heal them. He recognizes their healing. Verse 3, The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird in the open fields. This is strange, isn't it? Get a clay pot, put river water in it. It's got to be fresh water, can't be from a cistern. And um, take a bird and, and kill it sacrificially, which means you rip its head off. And, and let some of the blood splash into the water. Then take a piece of cedar wood, a red yarn, and a branch of a hyssop tr- uh, tree, and, and a live bird, and dip them into the water. That poor bird. Um, then I, I think maybe maybe the yarn was to tie it all together. Maybe. Uh, use the little cedar wood as a backboard for the bird and, and tie it on. And you dip it in and you sprinkle seven times on the healed person and let the bird go. It's strange. What's going on? I, d- I don't know. I don't know why the yarn is there. I don't know what the cedar is for. The hyssop was a ceremonial, um, easy to sprinkle uh, a plant. So I understand why that's there. I don't understand why everything else is there. I think maybe the, the birds here symbolize the person's life. They were dead, essentially. They were the living dead out of the community, not able to worship, not able to live with their family. One bird dies. It's symbolic of this living death. One bird lives. He's healed. That person, she can come back into the community now. That, that's probably what the birds are supposed to remind them of. After the ceremony, the person is to wash and shave their body, and they move into the camp, but not their house. And after seven days, you shave and wash again. This is described in the rest of chapter 14. And then you offer several sacrifices, a slew of offerings. 
Another unusual element, though, here, once you present these offerings, the priest is supposed to take the blood, part of the blood of the offering, and rub it on your right earlobe, your right thumb, and your right toe. Dab that blood on you. Why? Think again. This is to connect you to the temple, or the tabernacle. It's to connect you to the altar and the sacrifices that are offered there. I was out of the community. Now I'm coming back into the community. And this is a, this is a ceremony that goes through. This person has been excluded and is now welcomed home. I don't know how often this happened in the Bible. I don't know how often these sacrifices were made. We don't have uh, many records of them, except there was a period of time when the Lord Jesus walked on the earth and he would tell people to go offer these sacrifices. But even that was unusual, wasn't it? The Lord Jesus met many people who came to him who had to stand afar off and cover their mouth wearing torn clothes and unkempt hair, and yell out, unclean, unclean. The stories are all over the Gospels, aren't they? What happened to them? These people who were isolated, who were outside of the community, who had been sent away, who couldn't be near their family members, who couldn't work, what happened when the Lord Jesus saw them? He came up to them, and his was the first touch they had felt in however long it had been since their disease had started. He came to them and he touched them. And what did he do? He healed them. Jesus is not like these priests who can only recognize whether you've been healed or not. He is the one who actually comes and heals. And since he's there, you meet Jesus, you're not excluded from the community anymore. He makes it possible in the, in the Gospels for you to come home. And he makes it possible so that today we're not even required to offer these sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Jesus did not just come to heal people physically. He has healed people spiritually by serving as the ultimate sacrifice. He offered himself as the ultimate substitute. He who knew no sin. He had no sin. He became sin for us. And he died on the cross bearing the wrath of holy God in his own body and his perfect record of sin of, of obedience is, is ours. Now, how do, we, how do we take part in this? Huh. Not by rubbing blood on us, but by believing. The Bible offers this, this consistent call in the Bible to turn to Him, to trust in Him. Sin sends us away, it isolates us, but God provides a way for us to come home. Now, our isolation as members of a community of faith, a church like this, will end to the extent that our community centers around God's provision. What distinguishes us as a people is not that we're good people or not that we're uh, nice people or not that we're trying to be respectful, conservative people. What distinguishes us as a people is that the center of our faith is increasingly shaping us and forming us. That's how we overcome that isolation. That's how we overcome this, this tendency that we have to try to prove that we're the strongest, smartest person in the room. Because if, if, if you trust in Jesus, you are already confessing, I'm not as smart as, or as good or as strong as I think I want to be. 
We, we encourage and challenge one another to make Christ increasingly preeminent. So it leads me to a very practical question. How well have you done in making the gospel the center of your friendships in our congregation? How much does Christ pervade in the, in the conversations that you have with people? How much does, uh, how well do you represent Christ to, to your friends in church? Now, there's a lot of things that that doesn't mean. When I talk about having a Christ-centered friendship, it doesn't mean that you only do spiritual things like pray and sing worship songs. It doesn't mean that you're going to be bosom buddies with everyone. It doesn't mean uh, that, that uh, we, we are only holy, holy people. It means that, that you, you speak for Christ. You represent him and his gospel to those who are your closest friends. The center of your friendship is not that you have kids that are the same age or that you're involved in the same ministry or that you like to do the same things, you like to play the same sports or cheer for the same teams. The center of your relationship is you both know that the gospel is the answer to the the deepest questions that we ask. Alone, alone, all, all alone. Alone on a wide, wide sea. Not a saint took pity on my soul in agony. Brothers and sisters, let us speak to one another often and clearly of the one who has come to relieve us from our agony. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, recognize that though this um, culture and these instructions are far, far removed from us, they, they speak to us of important truths. Everyone here knows about the isolating effect of sin, either the sin that we commit and the, and the sin that has been committed against us. Thank you, Father, for your provision And, oh God, I pray that you would help us. Some of us need courage because we've been friends with people here so long and and we don't represent Christ well. And and we confess it feels, and it shouldn't, but it feels awkward to bring him into the conversation. We've developed easy patterns and, and uh, familiar roots of how deep our conversation goes and the role that Christ plays. So some of us need, need courage and wisdom to form new paths in our friendships. And I pray, Father, that you would help us do that. We want to speak to agonized souls, and we want to speak to one another of Christ. Help us to do that. Save us from being a people who are content to be united because we like to sing the same songs or like the same style of preaching or like the location of the parking lot. Save us from being people who are uh, united over those, those things. Build our congregation around your provision of your dear son. Help us, help us, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of our Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.